Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, so we'll, we'll be out at a relatively normal hour tonight. Um, for those of you guys that see a lot of, um, a lot of uh, newer faces, um, so my name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Monclova Road Baptist Church, and I work with our college students and our young adults, and I'm excited to be able to open up the Word with you tonight. Um, pray for our pastor. Um, he's not feeling well, and so he decided to be best to uh, take it easy, and we all encouraged that. And so pray for Pastor Rands, um, and he uh, hopefully will have a speedy uh, recovery. And so he's at home tonight, um, just trying to, like I said, get some rest. And so uh, he anticipates being back with us very soon, but tonight you're stuck with me, all right? And so uh, looking forward to opening up the Word. We have a lot of exciting things coming up here at the church. Um, if you weren't already aware, on Sunday, we are getting back into our buildings on our Sunday services, and so we're very excited. Um, to be able to use the buildings that God has blessed us with. Um, how many of you guys enjoy, we enjoyed the padded chairs, right? Um, I forgot what that was like for a church service for a little while, so a couple Wednesdays ago, and then I uh, came in here and sat, I was, oh, wow, my, uh, I can be comfortable and in church. It's amazing, it's amazing. And so I'm um, looking forward to that on Sunday. And so we have our 9.30 service and our 11 o'clock service. We will have classes for kids, and so if you have elementary age on down, we will have classes for them. We will have groups for them. Um, teenagers and our adult groups will not be meeting this weekend, but we will be picking those back up on the 11th. And so this Sunday, we are only in our worship services, except for our children. And then our adult groups pick right back up on the 11th. And so if you're a member of an adult group, we encourage you to participate in that. If you don't attend an adult group, um, we would love to connect you with one. We'd love to make introductions um, and tell you what we have that would be a great fit for you. And so uh, we'd love for you to make plans to come on the 11th, come join us for a worship service, stick around for an adult group. It'll be a great time on the 11th. So this Sunday back in the buildings and then on the 11th, picking back up with our groups. We're excited for um, just a great weekend this weekend. And so before we get uh, started tonight, let's go ahead and let's pray. And then we're going to jump into the word. Father, we're grateful that we can open up the scriptures tonight. I thank you for the truth of your word and how we can depend on it, how we can rely on it, how it fuels us and it feeds us. I pray tonight as we gather around it that you would speak to our hearts, that you would um, help us to understand the truth of your word, that you help us to apply it to our lives. Um, Lord, I pray tonight you would be with Pastor Rands, that you help him to um, continue to um, improve, that you help him to feel well, be able to be back with us again soon. And Lord, I pray that you be with all the preparation going into this weekend as this is the first time we'll be able to gather back in here on a Sunday morning with our whole church family. I just pray that you would have your hand on the services, that you'd be with the Word as it's open, that you'd be with the music teams as they're preparing even now and practicing. And I just pray that you would help us to have a great weekend of worship. And tonight, I pray that you would bless us as we jump into your Word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Mark. Go ahead and open up the, your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter number 9. I asked Pastor if he wanted me to kick off his uh, study in Jonah. Um, he said, no, please don't. Um, and so, you know, I thought, hey, twice in a row, whatever. But we'll jump into the book of Mark tonight. Mark chapter number nine. You know, um, how many of you guys have noticed that uh, words change their meaning sometimes? Have you guys ever, have you guys picked up on that? Um, sometimes a word, you think a word means one thing and a word means something totally different or so-and-so uses this word in a different way. Um, isn't it funny how words can just kind of evolve over time? Um, this is important because words are important, right? 
Uh, as we um, look at the book of Mark tonight, we're going to see one of those words. I want to use that kind of as a launching point. Um, but there's a few words as I was kind of prepping uh, for tonight. There's a few words that I noticed that I found out about that have changed their meaning over time. And I, I, think, I just think this is interesting. I like words. I, I use them a lot. Um, and so I like looking at this. And I thought this is kind of funny. Um, how many of you guys um, know what the word nice means? Anyone? Oh, that's nice. Okay. Uh, how many of you guys know the word nice? It's a basic word. We use it all the time. If someone came up to you and said, wow, you look really nice. Compliment, insult. How would you take that? Compliment. Okay. Some of you guys don't know how to take a compliment. Um, it's a compliment, right? That's a positive thing. Oh, you look nice. Did you know that nice actually used to be an insult? Nice meant silly or foolish. And so it would be kind of like, oh, that's nice, was what, how nice was actually used. Um, another word, um, awful. If someone comes over, if you're making dinner and someone jumps you know, on by and they have a bite with you and they said, wow, that tastes awful. Insult or compliment? I mean, insult, right? Like, what are you talking about? I mean, that tastes awful. Like, you can just get on out, get your own stuff right? Well, awful, including actually in the scripture, uh, the word awful means that it inspires awe. And so this was originally a compliment that somehow became an insult. Um, what about uh, the word clue? Does anyone know where the word clue came from or what the word clue used to mean? You don't have a clue. All right. Great. Current context. Great usage, right? The word clue actually had a, a specific meaning. It was a thing. A clue referred to a ball of yarn. How that came to mean, like the way we take clues, I don't know. I don't know that. Um, you have to ask someone else. Google it. What a bachelor. A bachelor. How many of us know what a bachelor is? How many of us know what a bachelor is because of a TV show, right? Um, like there's a, a bachelor, right? It's supposed to be like a single eligible man, right? That's a bachelor. Well, uh, originally, a bachelor was someone who was pursuing studies and achieved the kind of their first rank. That's why today, if you go to college, you get a bachelor's degree. And so that's where bachelor came from. Somehow, over time, that shifted to being someone single. Um, and even if we use the word meat, and this, again, happens in the scripture, we use the word meat. What do we think when we think of meat? We think of meat as in not a vegetable, right? It's something we eat and it doesn't grow on a plant. That's meat, all right? Uh, well, meat used to meet any kind of solid food. And so everything was meat. And so when you, and if you're reading your Bible and it says such and such meat, it's talking about just substance a lot of times when that word is used. These changes um, often come about. There's some kind of slang and the words just evolve throughout time. Um, another word, and a word we're going to look at tonight. And so I, I want you guys to define it. I want you to give me your definition, which for some of you guys sitting all towards the back. Thank you guys. True, faithful up here. Um, for all of you guys, we have to hear, you have to shout out nice and loud. Okay. Um, I want you to define the word salty, define the word salty. What does that mean to be salty? Rough. Alan says rough. How many of you guys agree? If someone says salty, that can be interpreted as rough. Was it Alan that said that? Oh, Kevin. Sorry. You guys are like right over there. It's one of those people under that light. So. Oh, you're oh, throwing your voice. Okay, good. I knew Alan was a puppet this whole time. He's a dummy. How many of you guys know what the word dummy means? All right. That's nice. 
applications. Look at this. We're five minutes in. We got applications. All right. So salty can mean rough, right? And where does that where does that come from, right? Sailors, especially the old sea dogs, they would be out and they would be on their ships and they would be tossed and the salt water would get into their hair and then the water evaporates, leaving behind the salt, right? And so they get crusty and they get rough and it kind of got synonymous with the sea dog kind of thing, right? And so salt, someone's salty, they're rough and they're gruff. Um, how many of you knew that there was a different meaning of the word salty? Not as being like, tastes like salt, but another, another, there's another newer application and a newer definition of the word salty. We knew that. A few people, a few people are aware of this. All right. And some of you guys are going to be salty. That There's a new definition of salty. All right. And uh, so salty in a modern, uh, not modern, modern is probably not the right word, in a more slang sense, it just means this. It means someone who's really, someone's irritated by something relatively petty. So if you and I, if we were playing a game, if we we're playing basketball, say Eric and I are playing basketball and Eric's a better basketball player than I am. And so I lose and I'm, oh, come on. How did you, uh, I could be salty about losing that game. All right. And now some of you are really salty about trying to keep up with language because this is, I mean, it's dizzying, right? There's a point, I promise. And so this word today can mean something different. These words can change. These words can evolve. As we look at Mark chapter number nine, this is, what I, this is where my mind goes. This is what I think is interesting here. What we're going to find is we're going to find the disciples being a little bit salty. Not in the rough sea dog version, but in the petty, somewhat petulant child version. Um, and so we're going to find the disciples being a little bit salty before Jesus comes at them and says, hey, I want you to be salty, but I want you to be salty in a different way. We're going to spend some time here in Mark chapter number nine, and we're going to look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? We're going to look at the difference between being a follower who is salty and a follower who is salt. So as we jump in here, watch what's going on in Mark chapter number nine. Let's start looking um, at verse number 33, and I've got a good amount of introduction. Once we start hitting our points, we're going to fly and we're going to be out of here. Hopefully before we all know it, right? 11.15 is what we said. You guys stayed up till last night, so we should be good till 11.15 tonight. All right. Verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, this being Jesus. Being in the house, he asked them, the disciples, what was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Okay. And so he says, hey, hey guys, what were you talking about on the way here. How many of you guys have ever had that conversation like with your kids? You're like, hey, what were you guys talking about? Hey, what were you guys doing? I know I've had that conversation with my kids. What were you guys doing? And um, here, the disciples, watch what they do. Verse number 34, but they held their peace. That means they didn't say anything. What does it mean when you ask your kids what they were doing and they don't say anything? Just in general, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, they were doing something they weren't supposed to be doing, right? And they don't want to tell you. And so they just stay quiet instead of incriminating themselves. Your kids, you know, they know the Fifth Amendment, and so they just kind of hold their peace, right? Well, that's exactly what the disciples are doing here. Jesus comes and he says, hey, what were you guys disputing about on the way here? And they all kind of looked at each other. Because, Mark informs us, verse 34, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. So can you imagine this? You're Peter, you're John, you're James, Andrew, whoever, and um, especially I think the brothers, you have Andrew and Peter, they're brothers, and so Andrew's like, hey, uh, Peter, 
I, um, I baptized six new disciples last week. How many did you baptize? Oh, only three? Mm. It's like, I'm going to be greater in the kingdom. How many is that now? Oh, man. Oh, I'm beating you so bad. Oh, we don't know the conversation. But they were disputing and they were arguing. They were like, no, 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 no. Watch. I was out here and I did this. I did that. And they were building themselves up. They're promoting their resumes, what they've done for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, hey, guys, what were you talking about? Um, that is a great question, Jesus. They don't want to answer. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus gives a response to the way that they're behaving. And he says, verse number 35, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he begins to set the stage for where we're going to get here in just a minute. Because what Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying the way to gain everything is to give up everything. The way to be rich is to be poor. The way to have is to not have. He says, you want to be the greatest of all? Okay, okay, that's fine. If you want to be the greatest of all, be the servant of all. And then we see him continue. Verse number 38, watch, watch what happens here. Because once again, these are back-to-back stories for a reason. Verse 38, John answered. John came to Jesus after he says, um, he begins to teach, and John comes to him, and John says, hey, 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 Jesus, master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And so John comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, man, you wouldn't believe this. This guy had the nerve to cast out demons and use your name. But I've never seen him following us, so I told him to knock it off. So care of that one for you, Jesus. You can imagine, you know, being all proud of what he had done. And what does Jesus say? Forbid him not. John, what were you thinking? Forbid him not. For there's no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. He that's not against us is on our part. John, why are you telling him to stop doing something good? He was casting out demons and you told him to stop it? John, what were you thinking? But once again, we find them, we find the disciples just being irritable. They, they don't want to get along with each other. They want to debate over who's the best in the kingdom. They don't want to get along with people that are outside of their group. And, oh, you can't go cast out demons in Jesus' name. You don't know Jesus like I know Jesus. And so they send him away. And so Jesus condemns, Jesus speaks to them and says, hey, guys, he corrects their misconceptions. And then uh, Jesus goes into a, a monologue here from about uh, verse 41 through 48. Um, and it really, there's some key principles I just want to highlight, a 30,000-foot view, because we got plenty to cover in the last two verses. And so what we find is that Jesus, he, he tells them, if you tell people to stop doing good, there's going to be consequences for those things. And then he presses deeper into the cost of discipleship. He says, if your foot offends you, cut it off. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Better to enter into life maimed than to hell and into the fire that never shall be quenched, verse number 43. Uh, and so as he's teaching this, really what he's teaching is he's teaching a radical commitment to the teachings that he is giving. He's saying disciples of mine must behave differently than anyone else. And Jesus teaches on judgment and justice to those who are unwilling to enter into the kingdom of God. 
And by the way, as we speak of the kingdom of God and entering into the kingdom of God, John very clearly lays out how one enters into the kingdom of God in John chapter number one, verse number 12. And it's not by being the best as Peter and James and John and the other disciples were arguing or fighting and bickering among themselves, but it's simply by this, belief in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Belief in Christ gives us entrance into the kingdom of God and helps us to become children of God. John chapter one, John chapter three continues that with Nicodemus speaking of being born again of water and of the spirit and entering into the kingdom of God, this birth that takes place through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus is teaching all these things, he's not teaching uh, moralism. What he's teaching is he's teaching the way that disciples behave. He's teaching how his followers are committed to something incredibly different. And so let's look here at verses 49 and 50. And I really want to jump in. I want to spend time here tonight looking at what does it look like? What does it look like to have and to be salt? Jesus uses similar phrases to this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're a little bit different, a little bit different application, but a very important understanding of Jesus' teaching here. Uh, Verse 49, watch this. For everyone shall be salted with fire. Everyone looking forward to that? Salted with fire, anyone? Okay, we'll get there. Uh, And every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. So as we jump in here, as we, as we just begin, I think it's important to understand this principle. When we're studying the Bible, um, how many of you guys are familiar with, if I said the word, if I said a hyperlink, you know what a hyperlink is? Or we shorten that a lot of times anymore, we shorten that to links, right? Oh yeah, I sent you that link, right? Someone sends you something in email, you click it and it pops up. Or um, I love this, if you read any kind of blogs or something like that, I love when um, those blogs are when the, uh, they're intentional enough that they highlight certain keywords, right? And then you click on that word, you see it's a different color, you click on that word, and it, it's a hyperlink. It jumps you over to another post on that topic, helps you to dig deeper into that thing, okay? Spend five minutes on Wikipedia and you're hyperlinked all over the place and you learned about something that you never needed to know about. It's amazing, okay? But here, what we find is actually in the scriptures, there's a lot of uh, the same ideas taking place. Only, obviously, they don't have digital communication in the first century. But what we have is that Jesus and other teachers, instead of reteaching an entire thing, they would insert a phrase or insert a statement from a previous scripture, from a previous writing, with the intention of the reader knowing what or studying what those things mean. And so what we have here is Jesus makes the statement, he says, everyone will be salted with fire, And he says that every sacrifice shall be salted with salt, okay? Now, you and I read that, and we're probably like, okay. It's an interesting statement, right? Well, Jesus actually is pulling that statement from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter number two, to be specific. And so in Leviticus chapter number two, verse 13, we read this. Every oblation of the meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And so as Jesus is making this statement, what is Jesus comparing his followers to? 
Leviticus chapter 2, it's all about the sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices that were offered to God. And so by making this statement, Jesus is actually painting this picture and he begins to kind of weave this into his text. He's saying, hey, you're going to be a disciple of me? Well, you're going to have to be salted. First century Jew is going to hear that and say, you mean like the sacrifices? You mean... But what Jesus is saying is this. Jesus is saying is that the disciple's life is a sacrifice. The disciple's life is a sacrifice. And this isn't unique to Jesus here in the book of Mark. This is actually a theme we see throughout the New Testament. And even in this chapter, Jesus is speaking, Jesus is saying, hey, what are you willing to sacrifice for the kingdom? Because what does he say? Again, let's go back to verse number 43. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. Excuse me, what? Do what now? He's saying, hey, listen, are you willing to sacrifice your hand for the kingdom? Jesus made some really strong, can we all agree? Jesus made some really strong, really sometimes hard to understand statements. And that's okay. Jesus also taught, he said, hey, um, the kingdom of God, it's kind of like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And a man finds it. Buries it, goes, sells all that he has so he can purchase that field. Hey, are you willing to sacrifice everything that you have? He tells another story, a very similar story, of a pearl, a pearl of great worth and great value. And he says, that pearl, the price is great on that pearl, but man will go and will sell all he has so they can go purchase that pearl. Well, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Are you willing to give up everything that you have? And then even here, as he paints this picture of the sacrifice, are you willing to give up your life to be a follower of Jesus? Paul confirms this idea later, the book of Romans, chapter number 12. Uh, Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so this picture of the disciple of Jesus as a sacrifice is all throughout the scriptures. But here, Jesus, he's not calling for an end of your life. He's really calling, to, uh, uh, calling you to an end of yourself, where you are no longer in control of the things that you do, but rather you yield yourself to God. The book of Romans once again informs us of this. As, he, as Paul writes and as he speaks of yielding our members as instruments. So your members, that's like your hand. Jesus uses the phrase, cut it off. Paul says, yield it as an instrument of righteousness unto God, not an instrument of unrighteousness unto sin. And so you and I are called to be a disciple. But that understand that that means sacrifice. Sometimes that means laying aside what we think of as our ideals. The thing that we say, you know what? My life would be better if I had blank. You see, when we begin to think that way, my life would be better if I had padded seats in church. You can see it now, right? We can like those things, but if we become obsessed, if we become focused on, my life is better if blank. If that blank is not Christ, hey, we're setting ourselves up with some really unrealistic expectations. Our hope is being drawn into things that at the end of the day may or may not actually make us happy. 
we've talked about this before, right? How many guys, how many guys, you know what you want? No, I mean, none of us really do, right? How many guys ever wanted something so bad and then you got it and it wasn't what you thought it was going to be? We've all been there, right? Wow, that was a disappointment. That was a waste of money. Oh, that was a letdown. We don't even know what we want, what we think is going to fill us. As a disciple of Christ, Christ calls us and he says, hey, let those things go. Come to me, be a follower of me. But as he compares us to a sacrifice, there's a really important picture here I don't want to just gloss over. Because what he says here in this verse, he says, look at the second half of the verse, every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Okay, great. That's Leviticus. And so we know he's clarifying. We know he's talking about us, our lives as a sacrifice. But even before he even says that, he says, everyone shall be salted with what? Everyone shall be salted with fire. How many of you guys want to be salted with fire? Anyone? No? No one? Okay. What does it mean to be salted with fire? Something really interesting actually just happened that we didn't take the time on the front end to develop, but I want to pay attention to it. Here in the book of Mark, chapter number nine, Jesus is speaking of the fire of judgment. He's speaking of a fire that consumes. And then what he's doing here is he says, you're going to be salted with fire. This fire that he's describing here, I don't believe this is the same. This is not a consuming kind of a fire, but rather this is a purifying fire. So um, who wrote the book of Mark? Mark, or John Mark. John Mark did. Um, I said in the one o'clock service, and I was like, I promise it's not a trick question because they were just like, it, it is John Mark, okay? All right? I'm not going to go through the whole New Test. John Mark, okay? Um, John Mark, here's, okay, here's a trivia question. Was John Mark one of the 12 apostles that followed Jesus? Yes or no? He was not. So how does John Mark know about these stories of Jesus. You ever thought about that? How does John Mark, and there's an answer for it, I promise I'm going to give it, I'm not going to leave you hanging, all right? How does John Mark know about the teachings of Jesus? I mean, someone told him, right? And a lot of people actually think, we, a lot of scholars actually think that we have a pretty good idea about who told him, all right? A man by the name of Simon Peter. And so uh, Peter, and, and here's another, here's one of the reasons that I think that Peter does this, is we find a very similar teaching, something that goes hand in hand with Mark chapter nine in the book of 1 Peter. Turn over there for me just a minute. Keep your finger in the book of Mark, but go over to 1 Peter chapter number one. Because Peter makes some really interesting statements here that I think aid us in our understanding of Mark chapter number nine. Two different passages here in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 7. Peter writes that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with what? Fire. Might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Flip over a couple pages. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 12. Peter writes this. Beloved, think it not strange 
concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So here, Peter has a very um, explanatory, a very explicit use of the word fire. What does Peter call fire? These are trials. These are sufferings. These are hardships. And as Peter speaks of these things, what does Peter, what does Peter, uh, how does Peter speak of them? Does he say, hey, avoid fire at all costs? Is that what Peter says? He does not. Rather, what does Peter say instead? Peter says, both in chapter one and chapter number four, that this fire is valuable in the life of the believer. How many of you guys enjoy suffering? There are terms for that, okay. Um, right? We don't enjoy suffering, do we? No, but also understand this, suffering has value. Suffering is not wasted. Trials are not empty. Trials have purpose. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, how many of you ever uh, played sports, coached sports, anything sport related? How many of you guys know what sports are? All right, awesome. I'm just trying to wake you guys up. You guys were up late last night, so I know another late night tonight, you know, okay. Um, how many played sports with coach sports? I know Eric, Eric coaches, um, our guys basketball team here at Monclova. Um, Eric, how much do you make the guys run start of, start of the season? Quite a bit, right? Quite a bit. Um, you probably should do it more, right? If, if anything, what happens when they run? Do they, I mean, they love it, right? They're like, coach Eric, you're the best. Yeah. Yeah. No, they hate it. Right. They're like, oh, this is the worst. I know I was like that. Like when I had to run, my coach was like, all right, take a lap. Oh man. I got salty. Um, so why, why then would Eric or would another coach make you run? Because he hates us, right? No, because that's, you have to be conditioned to be able to play. If you didn't run six days a week and on the seventh day you're supposed to go play a game, I mean, if the other team's running all week, by the end of the, by the, end of the first quarter, right? By the end of the half, by the end of the game, I mean, they're going to run in circles around you. You have to condition yourself. Is conditioning yourself fun? I mean, like, you know, there's a certain element of, like, accomplishment that's nice, but it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, right? We admit that. Okay. What about, um, how many of you have served in the military? Served in the military. Okay, a few. All right, thank you for your service. If you served in the military and you went to basic training, um, how, what would you use to describe, Kevin, I know you'll give me a feedback. Okay. Um, how would you describe your drill sergeant? Any of them. Cuddly. Pain in the butt. <laughs> All right. We're recording this, right? Uh, pain in the butt. So that's how, that's how Kev, Kevin's words, not mine. Um, they're, they're, I mean, I don't think anyone goes through base. You may have respect for your drill sergeant, may or may not, depending on the person. You probably don't like, like your drill sergeant if they're doing their job well, right? They're not cuddly. They're not your best friend. You don't want to hug him when it's all done, you know? You're like, get him away from me. Why? I mean, because they... I mean, they make you work. They're obnoxious to you. They are in your face. They are trying to prepare you to be a soldier. I mean, that, that's what they're trying to do, right? You wouldn't want to serve in the trenches 
We don't really have a lot of trenches anymore, but you know what I'm saying. Um, besides someone who didn't go through basic training, would you? Someone who failed out of basic training. You wouldn't want that kind of a soldier beside you. I mean, you'd be like, wow, we're desperate. We want the guy that couldn't hack it. You want someone who was conditioned to be a soldier. Um, I know we have a lot of teachers in the room. And teachers, you all hate your students because you give them work. How dare you? I mean, some of them like feel that way, right? Like they respond this way to you. Why do, why do teachers give work to students? Because they have to practice to be able to learn those things, right? They have to go home and they have to take and they have to apply the things that you've been teaching them. Um, or a parent, a good parent, disciplines their child, not just speaking of um, you know, the, the discipline, uh, the punitive sense of discipline, but a good parent teaches their children how to do certain things and teaches them how to be disciplined so that hopefully when the child turns 18 or whatever age that they have to go away, they can function as an adult, right? That's, that's a parent's job is to help them become a, not an infant anymore, but a full-grown, semi-functioning adult, right? And so in all of these areas of life, we find that we are put through or we put someone else through trials. God, as a loving father, why would he not do the same to us? Why would God just prop us up to live a life of ease and comfort and never walk through a difficult circumstance if he wants the best for us? In fact, through this fire of trial and this fire of suffering, Peter says that our faith emerges like gold. If I took gold out of the earth and I just had raw, the raw material and I said, hey, here is gold. You know, it's not that pretty. I mean, you might want it because it's valuable, right? But what are you going to have to do before it takes the shape of something actually valuable? The shape of something that people will actually want. You have to put it through a fire. It has to be melted. It has to be refined. The impurities have to be burned away. And then that gold can be shaped into a ring or a necklace or something beautiful. Um, another illustration, I, another way that I can frame this. Um, I like to think that I'm a good brother. Um, how many of you guys have siblings? Three of you? Okay, cool. Um, I thought it'd be a lot higher just statistically. So, um, so I, have, I have three younger brothers. I'm the oldest of four. My poor mom, yes, True. So um, my, the closest brother to me is three years younger than me. We were about, I was probably 10 or 11, so he'd be seven or eight. And um, we went to a pool, okay? Anyone see where this is going? Okay, so um, we went to a pool, and like a lot of pools, shallow end, deep end. And as a seven, eight-year-old, he had not quite grasped how to swim yet. And I had just learned, you know, within the last couple of years myself, and we live in the Midwest, so you have like three days that you can swim all year. And so um, we're out at the pool, and I, um, I said, hey, Zach, Let's go to the deep end, I'll carry you. And so the trusting little brother that he was, he um, put his arms around my neck, climbed on my back, and I began to dog paddle into the deep end. Well, when I got into the deep end, an idea hit me. I can help my younger brother. If I go into the water, he will have to learn how to swim or drown. Possible too, I guess. Um, it didn't really cross my mind as much, but you know, so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do my brother a favor. I'm going to go into the water. And so I began to sink into the water. And at first he held on really tight. And then all of a sudden I felt him let go. And like a fish, he swam to the side. And I kid you not, you ask him to this day, he will tell you if you said, Hey, how did you learn how to swim? Nate tried to drown me in the deep end of a pool. All right. 
That's what happened, okay? Um, I tried it again with another brother, and um, he's hydrophobic. And so it doesn't always work. But I tried. I said, I said to my brother, I said, hey, follow me. Okay, follow me. I'm going to go into the deep end of the pool. And he thought, he's trying to kill me, but he learned how to swim, right? Sometimes when we walk through trials, sometimes doesn't it kind of feel like that? Like Jesus calls to us and Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And we say, okay, what, Jesus, you know what? I'm going to follow you. I'm going to take a step of faith. I'm going to go somewhere that I don't understand. I'm going to follow you. And then before we realize it, before we know what's going on, we feel like we're drowning. Anyone been there? Just me? Okay, that's cool. It's cool. It's just me. That's right. Someone out here, someone out here feels that way. Man, sometimes these trials in life, we just feel like they're swallowing us up. And then we look around and we're like, God, like you're still here, right? God, hello. Like you told me to follow you and then here I am. And what Jesus is saying and what Peter is confirming is that as we follow after Jesus, this is a life of sacrifice and sacrifices require fire. Sacrifices require purification. There is going to be the process in the life of a sacrifice that we may not, probably won't enjoy. There's going to be a hardship that comes. There's going to be a trial that comes, and it's going to feel fiery. It's going to feel like it will consume you. If you've not been there, good news, it's coming. I don't, I mean, we don't like this, right? But at the end of the day, this is good for us. And so we find that Jesus compares us as a sacrifice, uh, compares us as disciples to a sacrifice. And as we suffer, there are a couple different reasons that we suffer that I won't spend a lot of time on, but 1 Peter chapter 4, he informs us. We can suffer sometimes because of our bad decisions. Um, and here he goes on, he says, as, you, as a murderer, a thief, a gossip, an evildoer, he kind of lists um, this is not a suffering that Peter is praising, and this is not the suffering that Jesus is talking about. Maybe you've met someone that um, is, oh man, you know, so-and-so, they just don't like me because I'm a Christian. But you're like, no, I think they don't really like you because you're kind of a jerk. You know, that's not the same thing. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. But he also says that we are gonna suffer because we live in a broken world. We're gonna suffer because there is persecution that will come. We're going to suffer because there are things that just are a result of the sin that exists. There are going to be hardships that we walk through. And here, as Jesus speaks of this salt, as he says, everyone's going to be salted with fire. This salt represents the purification of your faith through trials. How do we respond to that? My friend, don't fear the Lord's salting. Don't fear the Lord's salting. This is going to be something that happens in your life and it's for a purpose. It is on purpose. It is not an accident. God did not forget about you. He's not hanging you out to dry. He's not watching you drown. God still knows you're there, and God is allowing these things to come into your life. And we're going to move on to that. We're going to find that purpose here in just a minute. Look, um, as we continue in Mark chapter number nine, if you want to turn back over there, look at verse number 50. Jesus says this, salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will you season it? And so this kind of, it kind of begs a question here as he starts this. Salt is good. Why is salt good? I mean, Jesus doesn't really explain that, does he? 
He doesn't go in depth and he doesn't say, hey guys, salt is good and here's seven good things about salt. No, he's kind of expecting his audience to understand that salt is good. In the day and age that Jesus uh, lived in, he was teaching in first century um, Near East culture, he's teaching and he's going through these things. Salt had a few very specific purposes. Um, salt could be used, we even spoke of, for purification. Uh, salt was often used for one very major, very significant um, purpose for salt. Salt preserves. You see, in this day and age, they, um, you know, you buy, you go to the grocery store, okay? For example, you go to the grocery store and you buy some meat and you come home and you put it either in the refrigerator or in the freezer or you throw it right on the grill or whatever, right? You have to preserve that meat. You leave it sitting out, room temperature. And if you leave it sitting out for very long, you don't want to eat it, right? Well, lacking all of the components to be able to make a functioning refrigerator, what are they doing with meat? I mean, there's salt, heavily salting it. They're storing it sometimes in salt, right? And that salt is going to preserve the meat. And so as he speaks of salt, primarily salt is used in this day and age as a preservative. And here, here really comes to the question. So he says salt is good, but he kind of poses this. If the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? And so salt, salt's really interesting. And I think uh, what we need to do to really fully grasp this is we have to understand what salt was when Jesus was speaking of it versus the way that we think of salt today. How do we get salt today? Like what would, if you wanted to go get salt, you would go to Kroger or go to wherever you shop and you would go buy salt off, off of the shelf. And that salt is very pure salt, all right? I mean, that salt is, is pure salt. I'm gonna be careful with like my chemistry because Brian's in here and Brian is gonna, to say something and Brian's gonna be like, well, actually, I'm just kidding. Brian doesn't do that. Um, but Brian's gonna know. He'll know. He'll know. Um, so salt, um, sodium chloride, right? Yes. Ah, yes. All right. So salt, sodium chloride. I didn't know that. Um, and so that salt that you buy from the store, I mean, it's very pure, very pure. Um, but there's a process by which that salt is purified. And so today you go, you buy salt, you expect it to be mostly salt. Well, in Jesus' day and age, again, technology not being what it is today, uh, as people took and gathered salt, a lot of the salt is coming from natural kind of formations of salt. Well, it's not going through the same purification process. So if it's not being purified, what's going to exist in that salt? Impurities, right? Just by definition, there are going to be impurities in that salt. And so what would happen is, is people would use this salt, there would still be salt left over. But that salt that's left over is not, actually salt. It's like all the residue from the other things that were mixed in and mingled in with that salt. And so in Matthew and in Luke, when Jesus records this about salt, he asks the same question. He said, is salt, can salt be resavored basically? Can it be salted again? And he says, at that point, it's good for nothing. At that point, it's just impurities. At that point, it's good for nothing. Just take it out and it's good to be scattered out and trodden under the foot of men is what Jesus says. Because here's the question. When salt loses its salt, how can it be resalted? So based on the things that we have uh, talked through, based on what we've come to this point, here, here's how we want to define, here's how I want to define salt. Salt is the devotion of Jesus' disciples to his teaching and spirit of self-sacrifice. Okay, I know it's a long definition, but salt here, he's using this in this way the devotion of Jesus' disciples to his teaching 
and the spirit of self-sacrifice. This is how Jesus is using the term salt. And so as Jesus is using this term salt, if the followers of Jesus are going to be devoted to his teaching and the spirit of self-sacrifice that he embodies, and if he says, this is, this is good, salt is good, he's comparing it to salt because, hey, this is a preservative. This is something that you won't find in any other form. This is something that you won't find in any other way. There is no other uh, people group. There is no other body of anything that behaves this altruistically, this self-sacrificially, this devoted. There's no other uh, organization that exists in the same way as my followers are called to exist. And so here's the question that he's asking. If Jesus' followers are not devoted to him, if they do not embody the things that he is teaching, who will? If Jesus' followers don't behave like Jesus, who will? Who's going to come and resalt them? I mean, by definition, no one, right? The disciples of Jesus are called to behave like disciples of Jesus. Not to wait for someone else to come along and show them to behave like the disciple of Jesus. If we're his follower, we're called to behave like him, to be like him. There's nothing that can be used to salt salt. And spiritual salt, it's able to preserve because it focuses on the source of the blessing. It focuses on who Jesus is. It focuses on his teaching, not on self. You see, Christianity here, it calls us to be consumed, not to be a consumer. And as Jesus here is speaking of all of this salt, he's saying, hey, listen, salt is good. It's behaving as a preservative. You're going to walk through these trials and it's going to purify you and it's going to do these things and you have to be salted with that fire. And salt, salt is good. Don't misunderstand the teachings that I'm giving about salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, there's, there's nothing left to it. So we see, secondly, that salt represents the purpose of Christian living. A response, don't forget the purpose of the salt. Don't forget the purpose of the salt. And finally, as we wrap up tonight, look at the last half of Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. And so as he says, have salt with yourselves, have salt in yourselves, he's reminding us of what we just read, right? That salt is a picture of our self-sacrifice. You and I, we are living sacrifices, Paul's words. And so as we are this sacrifice, he's reminding us again, we're going to face this fire. We're going to be salted with fire. But what is the result of salt? What is the result of this salt that Jesus is speaking of? It's peace one with another. Peace one with another. See, salt results in a selfless faith. Salt results in a selfless faith. There's no such thing as a selfish sacrifice. I mean, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't function that way. There's no such thing as a selfish sacrifice. By definition, if someone is behaving sacrificially, what are they doing? They're inconveniencing themselves to better someone else. As parents, we sacrifice for our kids, right? A good parent sacrifices time or resources or who knows, 
a good parent in some way, shape, or form sacrifices for their children, right? We've all, a lot of us are parents in here. We've been there. Well, that requires something of me. It means that to be a good parent, I can't do that because instead I'm choosing to be a good parent. And so there's a certain degree of selflessness that just comes about in sacrifice. And as we sacrifice, as we are living sacrifice, these trials come and they test our true devotion. And there's really one, uh, there's really two ways that we can respond to the trials that God is going to allow in our lives. And Jesus is saying that there is a specific way that we should respond to them. When he says, have peace one with another. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, have peace in yourself. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't come here, he doesn't say, hey, have peace in yourself. You know, because, uh, you know, some of us, ideally, you know, the world speaks of, you know, that inner peace, right? Um, and there's a certain degree of, as believers, there is an inner peace, but he doesn't just say inner peace. What does he say? Have peace one with another. Trials make our perspective painfully obvious. When we're walking through trials, uh, we have the ability to um, really during that time, if we're not careful, trials can cause us to behave, um, to, to have a negative response. And here's what I mean by that. If I am uh, suffering, and uh, let's say I'm a big baby when I'm suffering, and my wife will confirm that. Um, let's say uh, I'm just, I, I don't want it. I'm not speaking of you. And there are times, man, trials are difficult, right? Uh, hard times are hard times for a reason. We call them that for a reason. But what can happen if we're not careful is through trials, we can put our head down and we can just look at ourselves. Sometimes if we're not careful through a trial, we can take our eyes off of everything else and we just lock on to us. We just lock on to me and I am hurting and I am walking through this and it's easy to do. This is not a message of self-condemnation. This is not a message of condemnation to you. This is none of those things. I'm trying to walk through this with you tonight. But as we walk through trials, we can get our head down. We can do a lot of navel gazing. And when we put our head down in the middle of a trial, what do we see? We only see ourselves. What don't we see when we put our head down in a trial? I mean, like anything, right? I mean, if, if I was going to see one of you right now, and you guys can do this at your seats yourself, I don't, you know. Uh, if, if, if I were to see one of you, what would have to happen? One of you would have to come grab me. I would have to walk close enough to one of you so that you would pass into my vision. Uh, I, I can't have my eyes on anything else because I have my head down and I'm focused, so focused on what's going on in, inside of me. But then when we pick our heads up, when we look around, what, do we, what all of a sudden, what becomes plain is there's other people in the room with us. We're able to look out for and we're able to respond to others. And so here when Jesus says, you're walking through trials, hey, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. He's saying, hey, that salt is inside of you. You're walking through that. You have a purpose and an understanding and you have a spirit of self sacrifice. You know what that kind of looks like? It looks like I don't hold my life dear to myself, but instead I adopt the vision of Hebrews chapter number 12, where the author writes this, looking unto Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of our faith. Because you see, as I pick my head up and as we look up to Jesus, if I am looking to Jesus in the middle of my hurt and my difficulty and my trial, and if Scott is looking to Jesus in the middle of his difficulty and his hurt and his trial, and if all of us in this room were looking to Jesus in the middle of the pain that we are walking through, all of a sudden what we're gonna find is we're gonna find that we have a source of unity one with another. We're gonna be at peace one with another because we're all moving and we're all looking the same direction. And you know, all of a sudden what God is able to do within your trial and within this salting with fire that he's speaking of, you know what's able to happen is as I'm walking towards Jesus, maybe I'm hurting, but man, I'm looking to Jesus and I'm moving towards Jesus. And then God brings Walter into my life. And Walter's hurting too, but you know what Walter's doing? He's looking unto Jesus. God can cross our paths. God can bring us together. God can allow us to walk together towards him. But you know what won't happen? That won't happen if I'm so caught up in my pain and my hurt and my trial that I'm not willing to look up to Jesus, the one who is walking me through this, the one who is guiding me through this, the one who is giving me strength through this. Because understand this, as trials are difficult and as they are hard and as there are days that you feel like you're drowning and you hurt, and as you go through all of this, you're not made to go through this by yourself. You're not designed to go through this by yourself. You're not strong enough. In fact, that's the gospel. That's the essence of this. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not complete enough. Jesus is complete for you. And as we look to Jesus, as we keep our eyes on him, you know what that brings? That brings us unity. Even in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of brokenness, when we are embodied by the spirit of self-sacrifice, when we are salt, I mean, understand this. We live in a day and age that doesn't want to be salt. We live in a day and age that wants to be salty, okay? If you want to be discouraged really quickly, sign up for a Twitter account, okay? All right? I mean, it's, it's amazing how much, I mean, we just wake up wanting to be angry. We just wake up wanting to be frustrated. We just look for all of the reasons that the sky is falling down. Man, it's been a, 2020s have been a long decade. Are we like, right? I mean, it's been a long, you know, 2020s. I don't even, I'm glad that they're almost over. Uh, I mean, like it's been a long year. Can we all just agree to that? I mean, so many different tensions and difficulties. And understand this, on a lot of very important things, right? I mean, none of us are sitting going, everything that's happened this year is trivial. Like, no, this is not making light of. It's been a long year. There are a lot of things that have come to the forefront of our culture that Christians need to be able to biblically speak into. As we speak into these things, you know what we're called to be? We're not called to be salty. We're not called to be annoyed and upset by everything that comes in front of us. We don't have to be because we can look to Jesus. As we step into these conversations, as we step into these difficulties, as we step into a year that has not been what any of us predicted, Jesus still calls us to be salt. He still calls us to keep our eyes on him, to press to him, to embody the spirit of his teachings and his self-sacrifice. Why? You are a sacrifice. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what he's called you to. Being a sacrifice means living sacrificially. There's no way around that. But as we pursue him, as we move towards him, God is capable of bringing together his people with an incredible sense of unity. And understand this, this is the final point and we're wrapping up and we're out of here. Salt brings peace from the inside out. Salt brings peace from the inside out. We respond by not forsaking, don't forsake, the unity that salt brings. You see, as Jesus calls his followers to be salt, he's not saying respond like the world around you responds. Christians in the middle of a year of uncertainty, wow, we should be the most stable people around. I mean, I mean that, I mean that. Why? Because look at the, okay, the instability. I mean, look at financial instability. We look at health instability, right, with a pandemic. We look at political instability, election year, all the things that go into that. We look at instability, instability. We can just name things that are unstable within our culture, all right? We all feel a little unstable, right? You and I, our foundation as believers isn't built on any of those things. Jesus in Matthew chapter five and a few other places, he, he gives a teaching on a wise man and a foolish man. And he says that each of these men, they build their house and the foolish man builds his house on sand. Like the chief characteristic of sand is that it doesn't stay in the same shape for very long, right? I mean, it just moves. And so the rains come and the wind blows like it did today, right? And what happens to that sand? I mean, it's just, it's gone. And the house has no stability. But the wise man doesn't build his house on sand. The wise man builds his house on a rock. And that rock is not a presidential candidate. That rock is not our health and our safety. That wealth is not financial investments. That, that wealth, that rock is not financial investments. That rock is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we build our life on him, we can have stability we can have hope, we can embody this spirit of self-sacrifice and the spirit of unity no matter what happens around us. So tonight, I just wanna leave you with, are you gonna choose to be a salty Christian? Are you gonna choose to be salt? Don't fear the Lord's salting. Don't forget the purpose of the salt and don't forsake the unity that salt brings. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have spoken to us through your word. We're grateful for the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to embody this teaching that you lay out. I pray that you would help us not to be um, a source of or an embodiment of frustration or uh, of anger or of anything um, that would not lead others towards you. Father, um, it's, we know that we're living in a climate that is especially charged more than many of us have seen in our lifetimes. But Father, you've given us the ability to just have such a great sense of unity because we have hope, because we have the same foundation, because we're moving in the same direction towards you. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up a church of people that would continue to follow after you, that we would embody the spirit of self-sacrifice, that we would lay aside our own desires and our own wants and anything that is outside of you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue you single-mindedly, single-heartedly. Lord, I pray that you would do a work through this, your people. 
I pray that you would bless our church tonight. And Lord, even as we prepare for Sunday, as we get back together within this building, as we look forward to um, worshiping and lifting up our voices inside in song, Lord, I pray that your name would be lifted up. I pray that your name would be glorified through our church and through every individual that's here tonight. We love you. We ask everything in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to go ahead and... Um, I know that a couple of men are prepared to take an offering. If you have kids, we still have just a moment. Um, let's go ahead and um, let's, just, let's just hang let's hang tight for a moment, if you will. If you want to gather your things, you are welcome to. And um, we'll let these guys make their way to the front. Um, again, just a couple um, announcements. I know we mentioned at the beginning of the service. Um, but Sunday, we look forward to seeing you at 930.